When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Mom and Dad are Fighting is sponsored by Stone Reset by Gemvara. Turn old jewelry or a loose gemstone into a new design setting you'll love. Choose from a variety of beautiful designs or customize your own. Right now, get 15% off the Stone Reset of your choice at StoneReset.com slash MomAndDad. And by Bloom, helping new families find the products they need from pregnancy to preschool. Discover a personalized box of new goodies for your child delivered to your doorstep every month. Just visit bloom.com slash momdad and use the promo code momdad. That's B-L-U-U-M slash momdad and the promo code momdad. And by Macmillan, a publisher of children's books including Whale in My Swimming Pool, a fun and fresh picture book about learning to adjust to life's curveballs. By Joyce Wan, author of the popular board books, You Are My Cupcake. A Whale in My Swimming Pool. On sale from Farrar Strauss Giroux Books for Young Readers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, April 9th, the Quantity Time Edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of Harper, who is seven, and Lyra, who is nine, and an editor at Slate. Allison is out, so please welcome our special guest host. Hi, I'm Jessica Roke, and I am the mom to Elliot, six, and Sylvie, three. Hello, Jessica. Hello, Dan. It's I'm great to be here. so happy to have you here. Uh, Allison is on spring break. Screw her. Woo! All right. On today's show, we are joined by Jennifer Senior of New York Magazine and the author of All Joy and No Fun to talk about a new study comparing quality time and quantity time and a provocative new idea about parental leave during the teenage years. Then we'll talk to Alan Kurtzweil about his new book, Whipping Boy, about his 40-year search for the bully who tormented him in grade school, plus triumphs and fails, and a listener call about a babysitter with a surprise. As always, please, if you are listening and you enjoy our show, recommend it. This week, I really want you to tell a family member about mom and dad are fighting. My sisters-in-law listen to the podcast because I will make them feel guilty if they don't. Hi, Emily. Hi, Stacy. How you doing? <laughs> this week, consider making your sister-in-law or brother-in-law feel guilty for not sharing this thing with you that you enjoy so much. Filial guilt 
can be a really powerful tool for podcast audience building. So please tell a friend. And if you are a fan of Slate, please consider joining our membership program, Slate Plus. You get bonus podcast segments, exclusive members-only podcasts, and behind-the-scenes looks at Slate long-form projects. Slate Plus is free to try for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash fighting plus to sign up. All right, let's move on to triumphs and fails. Jessica, what do you have for us this week? I have a triumph. Oh, congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. It's all triumphs, no fails. Yep, yep. That's my life. Yep, it's magical. (laughs) So my son right now is dealing with some anxiety at school because his teacher is in her infinite wisdom. Their school believes in collective punishment which I think is a terrible idea. What does that mean? Uh, that means, you know, if one kid gets in trouble, then all the kids are... Do push-ups? No, no, it's not. We're not talking about a Swiss boarding school, <laughs> as we will touch on later. It's just, you know, they all have to put their heads down or they all have to... It's a public school, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but, you know, they they all have to... None of them get to do the special thing or, you know, whatever the case is. It's a terrible way to discipline kids in my experience. And um, I really don't believe in it. But there it is. And um, one of the kind of worst byproducts of collective punishment is that what happens to kids who are the quote unquote good kids is that it teaches them that the quote unquote bad kids are in fact bad and that you should stay away from them if you want to be a good kid, you know, that they're doing the bad thing, you know, so my my son will say, Oh, he came home and he said, Oh, you know, they went to the bathroom and you know what happened then. They started chit-chatting. So they got in trouble and then we all got in trouble. So they're bad. And so I need to stay away from them. And so my triumph is that I was able to talk to him about why these two girls who are six, I should remind <laughs> everyone. So, you know, they should be able to maybe talk to each other every once in a while is what I'm thinking are not, in fact, bad children for talking to one another and are, in fact, not bad. And then also bring up the idea, once again, that not all adults are right all the time in the way that they approach punishment and that maybe without fomenting rebellion. I mean, that's the other thing. And my son is not is not a little rioter. I don't think Yeah, he's I don't gonna, see him fomenting rebellion. No, he's yeah. not. He's not. He's not going to rise up against the power structures at his elementary school as much as I might like that, you know. But I do think it's important for him to understand that just because this is the way that they have decided to discipline the students that this does not mean that he needs to like double up on the judgment against these kids. That's really interesting. Allison and I have talked before on the show about our basic philosophy of always backing up our kids' teachers. Of all, mm-hmm. of if the if it's a teacher said, kid said issue, we always back up the teacher, even mm-hmm. if we don't one hundred percent agree with them. But I agree that in a case like this where the like the the decision is so crazy, uh yeah. that it makes it hard to do that. And and so did you consider just backing up the teacher on the grounds that that is what you ought to do? Or did you really feel like it was important? It seems like you felt like it was important to teach him that there are rules that we follow, even if we think they're bad rules. Well, I it's April, right, of the year. I go into the classroom once a week. I volunteer in the classroom. Mm-hmm. So I am I actually know this, this teacher and I'm familiar with this classroom. And I've seen how this method plays out. And at this point, um, one of the reasons I 
also call this a triumph is because it makes me really angry on yeah. behalf of the kids who get called bad because I see that these kids are young. They're acting in ways that are totally normal for children to act. You right. know, totally of, developmentally appropriate. Yeah, you yes. know, like little kids are, are, I'm sorry, like little boys don't want to put their heads down on desks immediately. That's considered bad behavior. And yet, you know, then I see that this gets turned into problem behavior and I see how that plays out over the years and it makes me angry. So, but what one of the reasons why I thought it was a triumph was because I didn't refl- I didn't kind of like spit out all that anger onto my <laughs> child, right? To be like this is a problem with schools, you know, like this is a problem with the prison industrial complex, right? Yeah. That I was able to keep it together. And I don't think it's necessarily questioning the teacher. I mean, I think I always kind of preface it with, I'm sure your teacher, you know, it's hard to manage that many children. It's a big class. You know, she's a very good teacher. But it's also important to tell them that sometimes people, all people make bad choices, you know, I think. But it doesn't mean the kids are bad and it doesn't mean the teacher is a bad teacher. Right. It doesn't make the teacher a bad teacher, but it really doesn't make the kids bad kids. Yeah. All right. That's super interesting. Thanks. Mm -hmm. All right. I have a fail. This week. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I know. That must be hard. I don't know what that feels like. Well, let me tell you. Okay. Um, so uh, my fail is that uh, Harper had the funnest, biggest event in her daily school calendar. It is Poetry Day. And my fail is that I just missed it. I just missed it. I just totally missed it. Oh, I'm sorry. You know why I missed it? Why? Because I missed the email. Oh. Yeah. So the kids wrote poems. They all like dressed in black and they wore berets and they had a beatnik coffee house. <laughs> Did where people they all, snap? Yes, people snap instead oh, of clap wow. for their for to show appreciation for other people's poems. Harper made a sign that had a picture of a beatnik on it that said snap, don't clap. <laughs> And then they show off the books they wrote and all the parents come in and we loved it. Lyra did this two years ago when she had this teacher. We loved it. Harper had it this year and I don't even know what the hell happened. We just missed like the multiple emails about it. We just had no idea it was that day. And Harper was not happy with us at all, understandably. And uh, it really drove home that we are in a pretty uh, glum period of our parenting lives right now because – we're both we're just both totally like overloaded and crazed and we feel um apropos of the conversation we will soon be having that we are getting neither quality nor quantity time with our kids mm-hmm. because we never see them and then when we do see them we are so totally stressed out that we feel like we're not even really connecting that well but this was the most egregious example of blowing it in this our horrible spring of parenting. So mm-hmm. hopefully we have high hopes that we'll get better this summer as things will ease up but right now we are trying to keep our heads above water on the parenting front. But that was a really super bad fail. So uh, maybe my worst ever. I'm pretty excited about it. So I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Can you recreate the coffee house in your maybe this weekend? We're hoping that maybe what she'll do instead is just forget it ever happened. Okay. Yeah, that's our goal, actually. We don't want to remind her and ourselves of our fail, but maybe that would be a better, that would be a nicer thing to do. I mean, you could just, you know, really like set up the whole ambiance. You could really like set up a really awesome coffee house. Mm-hmm. And give her the great costume again and, you know, invite some people over and... And have better coffee. Yeah. Have better coffee than And then had. I would I would advise a bribe at the end. Yes. Well, a big the, gift. There's already been some discussion of the big bribe we're going to <laughs> use to make up for this one. All right. So triumphs and fails are over. Let's move on to a message from our first sponsor of the day. It is Stone Reset from Gemvara. 
you go to stonereset.com and you can turn your old jewelry or loose gemstone into a new design that you will love. You can sort of customize the settings on this uh, website that stonereset.com has where you can like pick out different layouts and different kinds of metal or other precious gems that you want to surround your gemstone with. Uh, it's like a fun toy to play with, and then you create the design you want. They send you an envelope for you to pack your old piece of jewelry in, and then it's all insured, and ca- they're very careful with it. And then they send you back your stone in a brand new uh, setting that you will actually like and actually wear. Here is our special mom and dad are fighting offer to get you started on Stone Reset by Jambara. You get 15% off the stone reset of your choosing, but you need to go to stonereset.com slash mom and dad. That's stonereset.com slash M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D. You will get a special listener deal of 15% off. You will fill out the form to get a prepaid insured kit and then click request package. Remember that's stonereset.com slash mom and dad. And thank you, Jemvara and Stone Reset, for being a sponsor of Mom and Dad are Fighting. All right, on to our first segment, quality time and quantity time. Last week, a study hit the news from the Journal of Marriage and Family about the difference between quality and quantity time that parents spend with kids. You may have seen this study on your Facebook feed. I sure did about 10 million times as busy parents shared it with sighs of relief. The study determined that the sheer quantity of time you spend with your child does not necessarily have an effect on his or her health and emotional well-being. Jessica, you read this study, and you found one particular aspect of it that I thought when you told me about it before we recorded was amazing. Tell us about that. I did. So kind of hidden in the study was this little factoid that said that working mothers now spend more time with their children than stay-at-home mothers did in the 1970s. So once again, that is uh, working, (laughs) you working parent spends more time with one's child right now than the supposedly totally engaged hippie stay at home parents did in the 1970s. I guess they were more, they were more like ice storm parents. That is exactly, that was my first thought. I was like, what were they doing? They were just off at key parties, just getting in touch with each other at, what what do you call those groups? At TM groups. Right, exactly. Consciousness raising seminars. Yeah, exactly. Well, so it's an it's a really interesting point because it reminds us that it's all relative, that the baseline of this study is a level of engagement with children that far surpasses what many of us grew up with. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to every rule. Maybe you maybe you or some of our listeners had parents who are really exceptionally engaged. But I think a lot of us live that sort of 70s kid life where you were off on your own, which in its own way was a great life. We've talked about it before, about how free range it was, right? Mm-hmm. But it also reminds us that at certain crucial points of our lives, our parents were often absent or AWOL or unavailable or having sex with the neighbors or whatever it was they were doing. <laughs> and so I sort of took this study with a little bit of a grain of salt, and that provides me an even bigger chunk of salt to take it with. And the study, it, it didn't 100 percent convinced me like i do feel like there were some big holes in it right it didn't deal with actual babies right zero to three year olds were completely left out of the study and it seems like the methodology of it was not like a totally amazing right they i think uh, it was uh justin wolfers at the new york times pointed out that they it wasn't really a longitudinal study they just kind of studied 
w- one weekday and one weekend day of a particular parent. So that's not really it doesn't show you, you know, long term how the how right. the time is spent. Depending on the weekend or weekday that you check me out, I could be an incredibly engaged parent mm-hmm. or I could literally not see my children at all. So right. it's hard like it's sort of hard to draw conclusions from that. But what I think is maybe most interesting about the study in the end, until more studies get done following up on its results, is the way that people responded to it. That's huge burst of relief I saw from working parents on my Facebook feed of people being like, finally, bless you, scientists, for finally telling me something I wanted to know, even though I think a lot of us still have a sinking feeling that there must be something wrong with a study. Yeah, overall, I mean, I think anything that provides a feeling of relief from just the constant you're doing it wrong message that all parents receive is great from you know? podcasts like this yeah exactly you yeah. are constantly judging everyone that yeah. is that is what this podcast is about but it is it's true there was a there was a professor featured in the the Washington Post article who's a professor of business she has two small children and she just talked about the voice in her head that was not kind that was also always she was always comparing herself to some perfect parent and that that parent is not realistic. That parent is an ideal and it is a cruel mistress. You know, it is unrealistic and it's terrible. And yeah, we're comparing ourselves to these things that these ideals that do not exist, no matter how much time we spend with them. And another thing that I thought was actually really interesting in the study was it talked about the one kind of time that was actually harmful for kids was time when the parent was stressed, anxious, uh, guilty or sleep deprived. So, which, which I, describes like me your first six months. like almost no, it All describes the time. me now. It describes <laughs> me now. That was the thing that scared me the most. Well, but I see that to me, I felt like in a certain way was liberating because I think that especially for stay at home moms, and I've been in this position, there's this feeling of, okay, but at least I'm, I'm giving my time, right? Like right. I'm giving all of it. And you really, there's this danger of slipping into this selfless martyr mother trap, right? Where you give everything for your children and you lose sight of yourself and you become completely depleted. But you say to yourself, but at least I'm giving everything for my children. And I thought it was a relief, again, for those, for all parents to say, that's not good for anybody. That's not actually good for your children. You need to take some time. You know, you need to take some time to go out and be with adult people. You need to take some time for yourself to enjoy things that you enjoy and then come back to your children. Your kids aren't actually benefiting from that. And most importantly, you're not benefiting from that. Like if you want to model kindness, you need to be kind to yourself. Yeah. Ah, uh, man, Jess, that description <laughs> of the kind of bad time that does not help your kids just makes me feel worse about my family. No, about my no, no, no. Woo. <laughs> So there was another take on this in New York Magazine that I really liked on the study. It was by Jennifer Senior, who has been on the show before. Jen is the author of All Joy and No Fun, a totally great book on the trials and tribulations of modern parenting. And she suggested in the New York Magazine blog, Science of Us, that this demonstrates not only that you know parents can feel a little bit better about themselves, but that there is one area where it really might make a difference and that it demonstrates the wisdom of taking parental leave, Jen wrote, when your kids are teenagers. And so we called her on the phone to talk to her about it. Hi, Jen. Hey there. So you focused on the one area in the study where there really was correlation between quantity, time, and well-being. Tell us about that and about the delinquency factor. Yeah, okay. So here's the deal. If moms engaged their teenagers, they saw active delinquency go down. 
delinquency defined as? Very broadly, and that's the thing, right? So, I mean, it could be anything from talking back, which I just consider being a teenager. I wouldn't right. slap any like, label on that at all. But anything from talking back to smoking weed to getting arrested to bullying somebody. I mean, it was a pretty broad definition. But at any rate, they saw a material difference if moms were engaging their kids. They also saw material differences if both parents were engaging their kids. And it was across a much wider variety of, like, of areas. It wasn't just delinquency. Their math scores went up. They generally misbehaved less. Their emotional well-being was slightly better. So I made this argument that I realize has absolutely no correspondence to the world we live in. We can't even get paid maternity and paternity leave, you know. But I did think... Yeah, you know, really, the vulnerable years, if we were thinking this through, are the adolescent ones. Until very recently, you wrote, you know, developmental psychology just didn't focus at all on the teenage years. It focused exclusively on newborns and really small kids. Why was that? Right. There was this, well, I know why. It's because it's much easier to follow a cohort from birth. Right. It's just and also you start with nothing and then there's something, whereas it's much harder to study a cohort where things are already in progress. So for a long time, people were not thinking about the adolescent brain. It was just a headache to try and figure out. There's now been all of this research, you know, all this great neuroscience about the adolescent brain. And we know certain things about it. I mean, the baseline assumption used to be that basically adolescents were defective adults. They were just incredibly (laughs) rude, um, you know, smaller grownups who acted out an awful lot. And now we're a little bit more enlightened about this. And from the point of view of their neurocircuitry, what seems to be going on is, first of all, their brains are flooded with dopamine, the feel-good hormone. So anything that they feel, they feel very intensely. But they also sort of have this weird thing where they think that any risk they take is going to pay off in spectacular dividends. They have this kind of overdeveloped sense of reward in their brains. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is they, um, their prefrontal cortexes aren't done developing, so they don't really have great judgment. They can't self-regulate. They can't plan very well. So if you think about this, a creature like that living in your house is going to be at risk. They're just, by definition, going to be more prone to do things that are slightly inane or maybe dangerous. And so it makes perfect sense, really, that parents would want to be around them at that time, right? I mean, it just, it stands to reason. And also, I mean, one of the nifty things that I learned along the way as I was doing research for this is that kids don't tend to act out in the backseat of cars, like, you know, on the weekends. That's not when and where they misbehave. Adolescents act out most between the hours of three and six in their houses. So if you're home, think about it. So I had a question actually about that, because the engagement question, I think that's great to be able, obviously, like between three and six, that would be the time to kind of be with your teenager, because that would be the time that they would be getting up to the most mischief. But then there's the question, what kind of engagement can you do while still or you know, how can you be engaged with your teenager while still giving them some freedom to develop into kind of independent adults who make good choices? Because otherwise, I think you run the risk of, you know, we've all seen that kid who goes to college in the first week, you know, he's been so tightly monitored that then he just goes crazy and binge drinks and (laughs) just goes nuts, you know? It's like their personal rumspringer. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, And and that is kind of like an exercise in minefield walking for all parents. I sometimes wonder if the solution is actually, I know this is banal, but it seems to be, again, borne out by data, to chat. 
not mm-hmm. to aggressively monitor them or to propose any fake fun togetherness activities, but to actually just ask them about what's going on. Adolescent kids give their parents strikingly low ratings on um, how well they know their lives. You know, they always say my parents low Yelp really... ratings on how they know their lives. <laughs> Um, yeah, exactly. We we would all be, you know, like one star or whatever. I don't know how Yelp does their rate. It's one. It stars, right? Anyway, yeah, yeah, ludicrously low. So, like, the idea would be basically just to talk. I mean, the, the weird thing is that adolescents, I mean, of course it's appropriate for them to want to individuate and pull away. It's the right thing for them to be doing, and they want to do it. But they secretly also kind of like talking to their parents, even though they might hmm. not admit that to their cohort. So that would be my sense. I think also just simply being around. There's something to just be said for that. I don't know if you guys had this impression, but when I read Anne-Marie Slaughter's piece about why women can't have it all, I felt like she tipped her whole hand in paragraph one by saying, I had this 14-year-old kid who was suddenly not talking to anyone and was failing out of school and wasn't showing up for classes and no one could reach him. And I just thought, oh, this is actually just a story about not just a story, but like this whole thing got started. The whole reason she wrote that essay is because her kid entered adolescence and the wheels started to come off, as they right. often do. Right. At, at a time, as you note in your piece, that that many women particularly are really st- sort of like hitting fourth or fifth gear in their careers. Uh, that's when the wheels start coming off for their kids. But I have a question for you on that front. Like, you know, you have you have a small child, right? Am I right? Yeah, I, I have remembering that kids, though, who were 12 and 16 when I first started dating my husband. So I also have a seven-year-old, but I've got stepkids who are older. So I saw yeah. adolescents at close range. You know, but, when that seven, but when that seven-year-old hits the teenage years, your career is certainly going to be accelerating right along and, and purring along in the fast lane, I hope. But so do you feel like this is advice you yourself might be able to follow or that it's something, it's something that you will be able to make a priority for? Or is it just too no, early and to in say? Fact, is, I, no, I mean, very frankly. And it's why I didn't frame it as advice. And in fact, I framed it as a conundrum saying that just mm-hmm. as, you know, we're hitting our stride, our kids' gates have gone wobbly. I mean, it was for precisely this reason. The, the fact that Anne-Marie Slaughter had to stop being the go-to woman for Hillary Clinton at the State Department in this time is, I think, kind of hair-raising for a lot of women First of all, you know, what's interesting, too, I should point out, is that she had a very engaged husband at home. So this also was sort of borne out in the data that really, at a certain point, you need both parents. It's not up to mom. It's up to both of them as a unit. So the fact is, neither parent alone can take the time off, and neither alone is probably sufficient. You probably need both bodies, and that's completely infeasible, unless you have some kind of equivalent of the Family Medical Leave Act for adolescents, which, by the way, I'm totally in favor of, but you can't use it for your adolescent kids. But you're right that it's a totally frustrating situation. And, and I mean, you're, you're right as well that both parents are necessary. And that just makes me think, well, yeah, and then there's millions and millions and millions of families in this country that don't have two parents. And mm-hmm. so you have one parent who is almost certainly working and facing this extremely difficult time of life just when his or her career is hopefully taking off. And it does seem like an impossible conundrum to get someone in that house between three and six, even every once in a while. Totally. I mean, here's one thought, which is, you know, we do, if we are lucky enough to have it, we do make use of the Family Medical Leave Act. And not all Americans have, you know, the privilege of being able to take it. I can't remember if it's 50% or if it's under. I mean, it's not, it's hardly ideal. But 
if people, if it became custom, if it became standard to take 12 weeks when your kid was in a particularly hairy stage of adolescence, which seems, according to every graph I've ever looked at, to be 14 years old, that seems to be the real peak time, you know, of kind of chaos, it would be kind of an interesting thing. No one, I mean, a lot of us were already, you know, hitting our stride when we took maternity and paternity leave, because we were in our 30s. You know, I mean, if you're a college-educated woman, that's when you're going to have your kid. You're going to be 30. Your husband's going to be 32 if you're in a straight relationship. So already you've got a head of steam going there. So we have a model for it. We've done it before, like it just sort of lurched into zero, into neutral and gone home, like because we had a baby. So th- there is some kind of psychological precedent for this. There is not any kind of workplace cultural precedent for it. All right. Well, it's a totally interesting idea. Um, I'm really excited to think about it some more and see if there's some way we can incorporate it into our lives somewhere down the road. Thank you so much for uh, calling in and talking to us, Jen. Thanks so much for having me. I love you guys. Jen Sr. from New York Magazine and the author of The Awesome All Joy and No Fun, now out in paperback. Okay, now it's time for our second ad from Bloom. Starting a family is one of those major life events where everything seems to change and you need all kinds of products, but you have no idea what you need. No idea. No idea how much of it. And all of a sudden you're overwhelmed with just mounds of products coming at you constantly. But this is where Bloom is such a fantastic service. So it helps, brings fun to finding new care products for your child by offering product advice and Every month, it will send you a box of five full-size, high-value products to discover that are perfectly staged for your child's age, gender, and developmental stage. So instead of just sending you something based on your child is six months, you will enter in information about your kid. So you might say, my child is teething right now, and then you would get adorable little you know, teethers, a little book. So you will get a 100% personalized box to every subscriber, and they do not just send general boxes. Everything is personalized and picked out by a dedicated team of MOMs, Managers of Merchandise, and they are relevant to you right now. So if you go and use the code right now, you can get 40% off the first month of all monthly 3, 6, and 12-month plans and free shipping. So go right now to bloom.com slash momdad. It's B-L-U-U-M dot com backslash momdad and start receiving adorable boxes full of wonderful products right away. And you will use the code MOMDAD, that's M-O-M-D-A-D, to get your 40% off. And thank you again, Bloom, for being a sponsor of Mom and Dad Are Fighting. All right, let's move on to our listener call. But before we do that, I actually want to read some emails we got. Our last episode touched on a pretty interesting and pretty charged issue of gun ownership in the home and how to handle it when the parent of a friend of your child may or may not have a gun in the home. And we got some really, really fascinating emails in response to that episode from parents who do not have guns, from parents who do have guns, from people uh, with a lot of different takes. So we want to read a few of these. The first one was from listener Lisa, who writes, Because we live on a farm with livestock, we use guns as a tool. We have a BB gun to ward off local dogs from our hens, a twenty-two rifle to kill foxes that would otherwise kill our ducks, and my husband owns a replica frontier-style black powder rifle because he got a little bit too enthusiastic about this whole homesteading thing. Luckily, she says, it's basically impossible to accidentally shoot someone with a black powder rifle as it takes 10 minutes to load a single ball. 
All three of these guns are wall-mounted in our house. In addition, my husband has his grandpa's shotgun and a hunting rifle in the basement. Currently, none of these five, yes, five, that is a lot of guns, are locked in a safe. On some level, we've avoided having to think seriously about the gun safe we will eventually buy because, until about the past year, our children were so young they could not access the guns which are stored well above their reach, nor were they strong enough to hold them. The reality is that, on a farm, you cannot have all your guns in a gun safe unloaded and stored separately from the ammunition. That is, if you actually intend to use the guns to ward off predatory animals. When my husband needs to grab the twenty-two, it's because our livestock guardian dog is alerted to a fox at two in the morning, resulting in the somewhat comic scene of a man in a bathrobe and headlamp holding a rifle and wandering about the pasture. Which is to say, we will never have all our guns locked up 100%. I would completely understand if a parent did not want to have a child come to a playdate at our house. My guns are not locked up. But I've learned that gun ownership is not as black and white as I had assumed when I lived in the suburbs or city when you would only have a gun to protect yourself or to go hunting. All right. Our next email is from listener Rain. Jessica. That's interesting. Rain writes, I live in rural central Illinois and I have two sons, ages five and ten. We do not own guns, but we live in a hunting community, 3,500 people and three nearby sports clubs, i.e. outside shooting ranges. My strategy is to double up the gun topic with the allergy topic. When I host a playdate for a new family, I offer up the fact we don't have guns right along with the information that we have a cat and a dog. When my sons go to a new house, I ask about guns when the other mom asks if we have any food allergies. We don't have allergies, but people are really conscientious about asking, so I use that as my opening. Every parent who has told me they do have guns has been quite expansive in telling me their storage situation and the way they have taught their kids to behave around guns. No one has seemed offended, and I have never stopped a play date because of the answer I got. That's a great tactic. Like, fine, there's always having a way that you, a thing that you mention alongside the guns so that you don't forget, and also to remind people that this is just one of many safety issues to, to be discussing before a play date. Right. All right. So, uh, one last letter from listener Pete. Hi, I was left shaking my head over the podcast today. My wife and I are both law enforcement officers, so there are obviously guns in our house. The guns are stored in a safe, of course, but I would never store my ammunition separately from my pistol. A gun without ammo is useless. Obviously, my family has different concerns than most because dealing with violent felons is our bread and butter. I was surprised that neither of you appear to know anyone in law enforcement. Suburbs are usually home to copious police, parole, corrections, federal court, etc., etc., etc. officers. I know Brooklyn isn't exactly a suburb, but there must still be a few NYPD left, and I guarantee you there are dozens of corrections officers within a few blocks. And he is right. Several people wrote to remind Allison that cops live in Brooklyn, Allison, (laughs) to which Allison said, oh, right, cops. All right. Thank you, everyone, for writing in. We got a lot of totally fascinating looks at this question. Uh, It remains very unsettled for me, but I'm really glad we had that conversation. And now let's move on to our listener call from Lisa from Michigan. Lisa, take it away. My husband and I have had a bit of a problem come up lately. We have this wonderful babysitter. And the last couple times, she's brought a friend. So when we get home from a night out, do we just pay her? Do we pay them both? Do we divide it between the two of them? We don't know what to do. Can you help? That is an interesting question that I think the answer to is quite simple, in my opinion. But it really (laughs) raises some other questions for me. Yes. Yes. So I think, first of all, I don't think you need to pay. You just pay your babysitter. And, you know, if they need to work something else out, they can work it out amongst themselves. But the real question I have is, why is your babysitter bringing friends to your house? 
That's a great question. That is really shady. So it's so it could have a totally reasonable answer. You might live someplace remote and your babysitter feels nervous and they want to have a friend there to help them feel safe, which is fine. That's totally normal. Right. But they should have mentioned it to you before that person showed up. Mm-hmm. We are generally pretty chill with our babysitter. Like we're very deferential toward her, in fact, because she, in fact, wields an incredible amount of power over us. We're hoping that she'll never <laughs> realize that. Um but if she just, like, brought some rando over to our house and we got home and that rando was, like, sitting there, we would be annoyed. And then we would, like, kowtowingly be like, oh, uh, that's, could you maybe not, like, uh, that's creepy. <laughs> but so I guess I, my question is, is this person, like, a co-babysitter? Is that the way they're presenting them to you? If so, then they should talk to you about that beforehand and then maybe work out some kind of payment plan if you and the babysitter agree that that seems necessary. But are they just a buddy or what? I don't know. Right. I mean, it could be a, a girlfriend. I mean, maybe there's yes, maybe yes. there's other stuff going on. So yeah, when I so when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, my best friend Mark had a babysitter named Nicole. She was a great babysitter. She was also my older brother's girlfriend. Mm. And so babysitting when she was babysitting for Mark when his mom was at work or out or whatever, it just basically meant that Nicole and my brother made out on the couch. While Mark and I did, I don't even know what. I don't even know what the right. hell we were doing. Uh, <laughs> except for that one time we were spying on them and my brother walked over and picked me up by like the skin of my chest <laughs> and held me up in the air and was like, go away. Uh, but anyways, I, so anyways, the point is, Lisa, I'm not saying that my brother is coming over to your house because he's a happily married man. And so he's probably not there. <laughs> but I'm just saying that babysitters should not invite other people over to your house without permission You should talk to her about this and ask her why this person is coming over and listen to her answer and talk to her about whether that is okay with you. Maybe it's totally fine with you, but she should raise it with you at some point. All right. Thank you, Lisa, for giving us a call. If you've got a question that you want us to answer on the air, give us a call at any hour and leave us a message at the voicemail at 424-255-7833. That number again, 424-255-RUDE, which is what I was when I was spying on my brother. All right. Let's move on to our third ad for Macmillan, the fine publisher of children's books and a fine sponsor of Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Today, we want to focus on one brand new, exciting Macmillan children's book called A Whale in My Swimming Pool. One sunny day, a little boy heads outside for a swim, but his pool is already taken. There's a whale in the water, and it's not budging. The boy tries everything to get the whale to leave, but nothing seems to work. Not fetch, not tag, not even offering the whale his allowance. What is a boy to do? This colorful whale of a tale from the talented illustrator and author Joyce Wan is sure to inspire giggles from little guppies ages two to five. Joyce Wan is the author of the very popular You Are My Cupcake board books, which Jessica, I believe, yes, you're a fan my, of in your home. My daughter loves The Owl and Friends, and the art is fantastic. It's super cute. Uh, yeah, the art in this book is it's totally adorable. It is on sale now from Afar Strasheru Books for Young Readers, an imprint of Macmillan Children's Publishing Group. It is Totally adorable, and check it out. It is a ideal summer read for little kids ages 2 to 5. Whale in My Swimming Pool by Joyce Wan. Thank you, McMillan, for sponsoring Mom and Dad Are Fighting. All right, let's move on to our second segment, Whipping Boy. When Alan Kurzweil was 10, he had his very own bully, as many of us did. That kid tormented him, belittled him, and on one memorable occasion, reenacted the whipping scene from Jesus Christ Superstar with Alan in the role of Jesus. 
Alan never forgot Cesar Augustus, his bully, and as an adult, he embarked on a quest to find this kid and, well, and what, is the question. The result of his quest is Kurzweil's great new book, Whipping Boy, and Alan is on the phone to talk to us about it now. Hi, Alan. Hey, Dan. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. So you had always, you wrote, uh, through young adulthood and then into adulthood, you'd had Cesar in the back of your mind, and you had wondered from time to time what happened to him. And you even did some preliminary research. You talked about him with your wife, and you looked into his background a little, and you visited the school that you went to. But in the book, you suggest that it was having your own son that led you to launch the quest in earnest. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. My father died when I was five. And so I never really had a parental role model to guide me along uh, responding to the challenges of raising a kid. And when my son was five, he found himself being tormented by a kid in his kindergarten. And he came to me for counsel, and I found myself profoundly ill-equipped to help him along. And the reason was very simple. I, too, had had a bully, and I had never had someone to provide me with the kind of guidance that my son was seeking. And even more than that, it sort of seems like you hadn't come to grips with your own experience. I hadn't. Uh, I had danced around the anguish I had suffered as a 10-year-old in a fancy boarding school in Switzerland. And as you described, it it was a horrific year. And the whipping scene that's described in great detail in the book is really only one of many such acts of humiliation, and by no means the worst. But in any case, there I was, faced by this five-year-old who was clearly in pain, both physical and emotional, and I responded to that pain the only way I really knew how, and that was to tell him a story, to write through that anguish, and together we uh, compiled a narrative that amalgamated his bully and my own into a children's book called Leon and the Spitting Image. And that was the beginning of my tiptoeing towards really confronting the true life nemesis that I had been carrying with me since 1971. Now, I don't want to spoil all the twists and turns that you found out about Cesar's truly amazing bananas life after his time at that boarding school. Um, but you do meet him. I think it's, I think we can say that you do meet him. And one thing about that encounter that that felt like a real, a really particular nightmare to me about it was that he didn't remember you the way you remembered him. And in fact, he didn't even remember you were in his, you roomed with him. What was that like? You know, I, I don't want to give anything away, but I will give enough to say that Caesar's adult adventures really were an affirmation and expansion on the malevolence he displayed in the Swiss boarding school. And uh, when I finally confronted him, I, I was doing so knowing that I was confronting an individual tethered to an international criminal ring, one that was filled with very dangerous and violent felons. And yet the terror that I carried with me when we sat down at a Thai restaurant in San Francisco was not the terror of a writer confronting uh, an indicted and convicted felon, though he was that. It was the terrified 10-year-old that I continued to retain, despite... uh, a modicum of success and professional achievement. And when I finally confronted him, and this was only after three or four meetings, when I finally looked him in the eye and said, hey, Caesar, you did a number on me, the only reason I had the courage to do so was because I programmed a little alert in my phone that announced, defend 
the 10-year-old at a certain point during that final conversation. It was only then that I was able to disburden myself and, and really take him on. I was fascinated that Cesar remembered his time at the school as a time when he was bullied. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's a remorseless individual, both uh, for the adult crimes he committed and for the actions undertaken as a 12-year-old kid in this boarding school. Um, he will always be, or at least until I last spoke to him, the victim. Uh, he has been running inside a hamster wheel of self-pity his entire life. And so his mom abandoned him by sending him to this school. The prosecutors who sent him to federal penitentiary betrayed him. And it went on and on in this fashion, including memories of the bouncer at uh, Studio 54 who denied him entrance to the discotheque. So, <laughs> a I'm true tragedy. We have to add my name to the list of abusers since I uh, sat down and, and wrote a, a rather exhaustive account of our relationship as children and his subsequent activities. As right, as but may, maybe still after the bouncer from Studio 54. So well, that's true. Grievances. That's a trauma that never really leaves you. <laughs> no, one, no one can recover from that. Um, I actually had a question, too, about... You talk about the, you know, writing the children's book with your young son, you know, to work through that young bullying experience. But I'm, I'm really curious, having come through this in, entire odyssey, you know, with your family, what is your son taken away now? He's he's what, like twenty now? He must be a young yeah, man. Yeah, he's, he's at now this point. Uh, a legal. He's now of legal drinking age. He's wow. Um, wow. So what has he taken away from this? So if you had a conversation with him now about how do you deal with bullies, what's what do you think he's taken away from it now that you've come out on the other side of it? Well, one of the miraculous things about writing a book that took as long as it did to c compose and chronicle is that I've watched my son evolve in his relationship to Caesar. When I first started describing my experiences, I was, as a dad, invincible. And Max, my son, saw no reason why I couldn't just go out and neutralize this, this fellow. And then as he grew up, as he got older, fear started entering into his life. And he had a more sort of realistic view of just how invincible, how, mm -hmm. how vulnerable <laughs> I was. Uh, but um, when you ask how he's doing now, this relationship to Caesar, this search for Caesar and confrontation has proved a profoundly important and beneficial emotional mastic that brings my son and me together. What started out to be a burden really has become a blessing of sorts. All right. Well, that's super interesting. I, we will see if I have the guts to unblock my own personal Caesar on Facebook. That would be a <laughs> fine first step. Uh, all right. The book is Whipping Boy, The 40-Year Search for My 12-Year-Old Bully. The author is Alan Kurtzweil. It's totally fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on with us, Alan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. All right, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have a Caesar in your past? Did you confront that Caesar? Would you ever have the guts to do that? I don't I don't think I have the guts to do it. Uh, but please email us at momanddad at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. And tell us your story. We really want to hear it. All right, let's move on to recommendations. Jessica, what do you got? There is a CD called The Hero in You. A CD? A CD, I know. Is that some kind of I know, music delivery device? It's an ancient technology. Oh. It goes round and round. I bet you could get this as an 
MP3? <laughs> sure, yeah. Is that a more modern technology? Sure, yeah. Um, yes, you could get this online. It's called The Hero in You by Ellis Paul. He is a singer-songwriter from Boston, and this was recommended to me quite recently, and uh, my kids love it. And it is about different heroes of history. So there are little songs about like Nellie Bly, Rachel Carson, Jackie Robinson, George O'Keefe. Rosa so like Parks, liberal woo-woo heroes. Liberal woo-woo heroes. Okay. Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin. He okay, was a founding good. father. Sure, yeah. Right. Our, um, our most venereal disease-ridden founding father. <laughs> so anyway, it's a great little way to get your kids into history if they're so inclined. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Ellis Paul's kind of rap about Martha Graham, <laughs> but for the most part... I think they're they're really fun. And I mean, it's hard to argue when your kids are singing about Nellie Bly. That's yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Oh, man, I cannot wait to hear the rap about Martha Graham. I'm definitely <laughs> it's down, really, I'm it's really that unfortunate. one specifically. <laughs> uh, I'm recommending a YA fantasy novel called Serafina by Rachel Hartman. Uh, it is really great for teen readers who like Aragon or Harry Potter but are looking for something a little bit more sophisticated. It would also be really fun for adult readers who like Temeraire and are looking for something a little less sophisticated. It's about a kingdom where humans and dragons are 30 years into an uneasy peace treaty. In this kingdom, dragons can take human form, and in that form, they sort of they live among us, sort of like Vulcans, studying our ways. The main character, uh, Serafina, is an apprentice composer at court. She's a musician, she's an adventurer, but also she's a secret half-breed. She is half-dragon, half-human. But then a prince is found dead in the woods with his head missing, and shit gets real in the kingdom of Gorath. It's super fun. <laughs> it is very exciting. It's beautifully written, and the sequel, Shadow Scale, is out this month, so I'm eager to read that, too. It is called Serafina. It's by Rachel Hartman. Check it out. I really loved it. All right. Well, that is our show. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or guests or whatever, or just to say hi or to yell at Jessica. <laughs> and if you've got a question, again, please give us a call at any hour. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That number again, 424-255-RUDE. Please subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Mom and Dad are Fighting and leave a comment or a rating while you're there. That helps people find the show and it helps push down the rating where someone described us as John and Kate plus eight in podcast form. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, Mom and Dad are Fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Thanks to our guests, Jennifer Sr. and Alan Kurtzweil. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, our managing producer, Joel Meyer, and our executive producer, Andy Bowers. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Carrie Goldberg. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And we'd like to invite you to our podcast from WBUR and Slate, The Checkup. Our solidly reported but somewhat opinionated take on health news for you and your family. Including some of our favorite topics like food. As in surprising news about kale. Or sex. Like you're never too old to have it. Or germs. Like you don't want to be too clean. Check out The Checkup and other podcasts from the Panoply Network at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.